1: and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program.
2: So good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It's a beautiful day in Washington, D.C., Laughing because I always say that, and uh, but it is the sun has come out, the rain has stopped, and and here we are uh, a great day to be alive here at, at the Heritage Foundation. My name is Lee Edwards. I'm a fellow here at the Heritage Foundation, and I am so pleased to be able to introduce our our speaker. You know, it's it's all too easy these days to focus on the negative. In our nation from school shootings and declining Sunday attendance in our churches to racist rhetoric hyper partisanship in our politics and it's tempting to turn off the TV close down all the apps and adopt the Benedict option well that's that's not what we're about here that's not the American way We've never surrendered to doubt and despair, even in time of war or economic or cultural crisis. Since our founding 234 years, 243 years ago, Americans have always risen to any challenge to our lives, our liberty, and our happiness. Always, there have risen in time of crisis men and women who call forth the best in us, who awaken us to the better angels of our nature. And such a providential individual is our guest today, Timothy S. Gagline. That's not only my opinion, and I've known Tim for quite a few years, but that of national leaders like Alan Sears, founder of the Alliance Defending Freedom, K. Cole James, our president of the Heritage Foundation, Jim Daly, president of Focus on the Family, and former Attorney General Edwin Meese III. Now, in their book, American Restoration, How Faith, Family, and Personal Sacrifice Can Heal Our Nation, Tim and his co-author, Craig Austin, explain how you and I can restore the first principles of our founding. You know, their their message is deceptively simple. America will be great again when America is good again. Now, Tim and Craig insist this is not an impossible goal, but one that can be achieved if Americans turn to what? To the moral values that have always guided us and made us a shining city on a hill. Now, Tim Gagline is the vice president for external and government relations and focus on the family, a former press secretary to a U.S. senator, a special assistant to President George W. Bush, and deputy director of the White House Office of Public Liaison. But first and foremost, he's a man of faith, and family. So, ladies and gentlemen, please join me in giving a warm heritage welcome to Tim Gagline, author of the forthcoming best-selling book, American
1: Restoration. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. With an introduction like that, I am tempted to say thank you and good night, but I won't. I... Um, have hanging on my office wall two blocks from the Heritage Foundation what I consider to be one of the greatest paragraphs of the 20th century. Russell Kirk. The conservative is concerned, first of all, for the regeneration of spirit and character with the perennial problem of the inner order of the soul the restoration of the ethical understanding, and the religious sanction upon which any life worth living is founded. And he concludes beautifully, this is conservatism at its highest. Now, in my role at Focus on the Family, I travel about a third of the time. It's a lot of travel. And over the course of the last 10 years, Lee... I continue to hear the same refrain over and over and over again, regardless of where I'm at. In fact, in the last two weeks, I've been to Boise, uh, Idaho, to Orange County. I'm coming up on a visit to uh, Wyoming later this week. I'm back from Colorado, soon to be in Northern California, and up and down the eastern seaboard. I can bet everybody in this room a $10,000 check that before I leave the auditorium or forum where I am honored to speak, I will hear the following refrain from both liberals and conservatives, from Democrats and Republicans, and all of the above and none of the above, depending on what day of the week it is. Here's what they say. I have never been more concerned about the direction of the United States of America. Secondly, they will say, I am particularly concerned about the country that I'm leaving for my children and my grandchildren. And thirdly, and most importantly, I don't know what to do there is a palpable sense of discouragement and despair. But as a Christian, I believe very strongly that discouragement and despair is a sin because it negates the hope of God himself, both in the life of an individual and in the lifeblood of an extraordinary country like the United States of America. Now, over the course of the last eight years, I've spent a lot of time reading. And among all of the books that I've been honored to read, these have had the greatest impact on the foundation of American restoration. First and foremost, Coming Apart by the great Charles Murray. Generation Unbound by Belle Sawhill. Alienated America by Tim Carney. Hillbilly Elegy by J.D. Vance, and Our Kids by Bob Putman of Harvard. Every one of those books, both empirically and anecdotally, every one of those books evoke and outline major cultural disintegration, social dysfunction, and an almost palpable, tangible chaos. But all of those great books, and they are great books, do not set out necessarily a remedy for restoration, for regeneration, and for renewal. I must say as well that the matchless research over a lifetime by the Heritage Foundation's Robert Rector and by the Brookings Institution's Ron Haskins, who is a uh, fellow valued colleague from the Bush years, had a very large impact on my and uh, my co-author Craig Osten's thinking. Also, I uh, very recently was honored to go back and to read through two of the five uh, volumes uh, of the Federalist Papers. And I'm struck over and over again by how that remarkable generation of our founders, ultimately in the greatest document for freedom in the history of mankind, settled on those three words which are more timely today, I would argue, than any time in the history of our country. We the people. What does we the people mean in the 21st century? the Constitution's great words. If we traveled all around our great country, walked into any room of 100 people, would we all mostly agree on who we the people are or what the meaning of that phrase is now? I want to say something else, if I may. There will never be a conservative equivalent of the great society. little uh, bit of time, in the 1960s, where the administrative state poobahs decided that they would actually incentivize the destruction of the family and marriage. There is not ever going to be a moment where, from culture, conservatives will come together and say, here's the 10-point plan. Because it's not in the nature of conservatism, which is not to say that there is not now or never will be a great series of very important policies. Uh, The Heritage Foundation, I think, focus on the family, Uh, factories of ideas. That's that's the greatness of, of, of great think tanks. And we certainly have a plethora of great policies to choose from. But this is decidedly American restoration, not a political book. It's a culture book. And I believe very strongly with Pope John Paul II that culture leads. We ought all pay attention to what's going on in culture, not government-directed destruction of first principles, which we have watched over and over again. Rather, American restoration begins where the great Edmund Burke begins. In the little platoons, the local solutions in our families, communities, marriages, parenting, churches, synagogues, neighborhoods, civil society. It's from the bottom up and not from the top down. We have to, as a nation, find a way to move forward together to shape the future because the largest historical question in 2019, quite apart from any Senate, House gubernatorial or White House run is the following. What kind of a country, what kind of a culture, what kind of a civilization do we want 50 years from now? Because American restoration goes to the heart of the answer to that question. All of us, as we say in our book, all of us, on both sides of the proverbial cultural divide, have to display a noble willingness to sacrifice for the larger vision and for the sake of the greater good of the United States of America. Victor Hugo famously said that nothing is more powerful than an idea whose time has come. And what powers American restoration are, in my view, very good ideas, not about the way backwards, backwards to something, but about the way forward to something and to a vision that we outline. In other words, 15 great ideas about institutions worth restoring. The whole idea of American restoration how faith family and personal sacrifice can heal our nation is about restoration renewal and regeneration that is not just possible but probable we are so grateful to regnery books which from the beginning has consistently published the most important thought leaders in american conservatism none more so than William F. Buckley, Russell Kirk, and of course, Lee Edwards. What do we seek to do in this book? It's about restoring America's founding principles. That's where we begin. About restoring religious liberty and the rights of conscience. About restoring medicine and medical ethics. About restoring a culture of life. I want to be very clear that we are very clear in this book to say that 60 million abortions since 1973 is 63 million abortions too many. We can, and I believe that we will, do better. Every once in a while, Providence does clear his throat. And I believe that Providence will clear his throat, as we say in our book, when Roe versus Wade is a memory. Chapter 5, if I may say, is perhaps the spine of this book. And it's very simpatico with my own role at Focus on the Family, nearly eight years at the White House, and a little over 10 years in the United States Senate, restoring marriage, family, parenting, and social capital. And I want to be very clear in this regard, if I may, Lee. These are the immutable institutions. Marriage, family, parenting is the first pillar of our civilization. There is nothing, now or ever, that can or ever will replace the family. Restoring the concept of the gentleman, uh, I was doing a radio interview this morning with the Great Hillsdale. And the uh, interviewer said to me, of all of the chapters, this was his favorite. Why the concept of the gentleman? And I shared with him that I wrote an essay for Focus on the Family Citizen magazine several years ago. And I've written a number of things over a number of years. I'm raising my right hand. I have never received this much response to a single relatively short essay. And overwhelmingly, counterintuitively, I was overwhelmed with letters and emails and not a few telephone calls, principally from mothers who said, that in the coarsened culture of 21st century America, they knew that all the boys would become men, but that not all the boys would become gentlemen. The idea of fatherlessness is a plague on our country. The idea of uh, the, uh, the irrelevancy, increasingly, of the differences the God-given differences, the blessings, the differences between male and female, between boys and girls, those are, those are good things. And we ought to recognize them again. What kind of gentlemen, and may I say, Lee, what, what kind of ladies are we producing in 21st century America? Those are good questions. And they're ones that we, we address in American restoration. Also, restoring virtue. You know, um, I was privileged to be in this room for the first time in the summer of 1985 when I was an intern for Dan Quayle. Remember him? In the U.S. Senate. What a great man. And I remember coming into this room and hearing for the very first time that the other side of liberty and freedom was virtue. That if you want liberty and freedom over time, you better nourish and regenerate moral excellence in the people and in the leaders from the earliest of ages? What are we doing in our public and in our private schools? What are we doing in our churches and our synagogues and our temples to seed and to nourish and to grow and to develop that kind of moral excellence that we need in 21st century America? This is another good question. We also deal very directly with with the need to restore education, restoring civility. This was born out of a forum that I'm honored to be a part of at the University of Pennsylvania. There aren't a lot of people on that forum who share the worldview that is expressed in American restoration, and that's a good thing. It makes me, I pray, better in the public square. I've spent a lifetime in debates in forums, on panels. And I find that iron sharpens iron. And that in the American experience, our ability to disagree agreeably on the biggest possible things is a good thing. It's great for the United States of America. We dare not continue to poison the public square. Citizenship and duty, restoring community, restoring the balance between politics and culture, restoring the Constitution, restoring patriotism and sacrifice. I share in this book a very unusual moment that I had in a very large public school. I was very privileged to speak there. And afterward, there was a a very wonderful teacher who uh, thanked me for being there and uh, said to me, almost in a going away fashion, if you, could, uh, if you could add one thing into our classrooms and what you've seen today, what would it be? And I said, uh, I would probably put a, a portrait uh, you know, in each one of the classrooms of Washington and Lincoln. And I would probably have an American flag in every classroom. And quite innocently, she said, why would you do that? And I thought to myself, that ought to be in the book. Restoring the Constitution, restoring patriotism and sacrifice, and finally, restoring the United States of America. Uh, last week, uh, there was one particular review uh, who compared uh, our book to an, another truly great book, and we were humbled by that. And, uh, and uh, one of my colleagues said, you know, it reminds us a little bit of a, of a program. You know, is, is your book a program? You know, is it lines and boxes? And I was very clear to say that that is not the goal. Uh, we, we, we certainly hope that these uh, 15 ideas are worthy ideas, that they will contribute to the, to the cultural renewal and you know, acts of renewal that we all seek. Um, but we're very clear to say that these are, that these are ideas. And they're, they're real world possibilities. But we're very clear to say, too, that the United States of America is a large complex continental nation of nearly 240 souls. And it's not about, as I say, an implication that these are the only ideas or the only possibilities. I want to say something else, if I may. Uh, We are living in a progressive revolution that is as mighty and powerful as the cultural revolution of the 1960s and 70s. I was part of a panel here in Washington just a few weeks ago, in which one of my interlocutors uh, seemed to suggest that the social and moral revolution of the 60s and 70s was over. And I said, actually, just the opposite. Uh, The time that we are living in, and if I may say, the frontal assault on the first institutions that I've been describing this morning, proceeds apace. And I think it's a great challenge to everybody who will read American Restoration to better, if I may say, internalize what that ongoing progressive revolution actually will ultimately mean, first in culture and then in public policy. I think we are facing undoubtedly massive problems of cultural and national disintegration, that we're in the midst of a giant, enormous debate with great consequences about the next chapter of our national life, that the discordant notes are many. And I was struck by that wonderful observation from the late, great Charles Krauthammer, who said, you're betraying your whole life if you don't say what you think and you don't say it honestly and bluntly. I hope graciously as well. And that's been our goal for American Restoration. But I am an irredeemable optimist. I'm a hopefulist, not a confetti to the wind man. I believe that we as a nation can, in fact, restore and renew. uh, And we have to keep in mind what Burke told us that might look like, which is that we have to reform in order to preserve. That is the greatness, in my view, of the contribution of conservatism in the public square. This is what Burke said. He said, the means by which providence raises a nation to greatness are the virtue infused into great men. Reform and not revolution, in our view, is a good way forward. And as Evelyn Waugh observed, civilization is difficult to build and easy to tear down. The dictatorship of relativism that Benedict XVI observed is real, and our challenges are enormous. Two more things, if I may. American restoration posits a certain idea of America. I think it is fair to say that there is another idea of America, and that idea is in full prosecution. It is well-funded. It has a remarkable network and matrix of people who get up every day and who sail into that worldview. They feel confident, and they feel empowered. And that's, of course, part of what goes on in the public square. And I don't mind saying that a lot of the people who are far more in sync with the worldview that is outlined by American Restoration probably do not organize themselves as often into those matrices and and uh, networks that I'm talking about because they don't principally see political power as the point of it all. And so another great challenge in American restoration is to speak directly into those local solutions and to celebrate those possibilities about our way forward because the question does emerge whether these are ultimately unbridgeable chasms. Daniel Patrick Moynihan famously used the phrase, defining deviancy down. And I remember the first time that he used that phrase, thinking about the applicability, not just in the time that I was living, but what that would mean uh, down the line. And I think that we have arrived at that moment. Good lives revolve around healthy relationships, and American Restoration seeks to hold those up not as ancillary, but as central to our civic dialogue. As part of a breakfast gathering a few weeks ago with a president of a wonderful college in the Washington metropolitan area, he set out for our group two things that are completely in line with American restoration, which are worth mentioning this afternoon. He talked about a crisis of civil discourse and the need to cultivate transcendence. And I shared with him a copy of the book, and he called me the next day, and he said, that's precisely what we're talking about here. I asked him if he believed that there is, in fact, a divine purpose in life and in a nation, and he said that he did. And he said that one of the great things about this book, and I am humbled to have him say it, is that it shines light in dark courses, in, in, uh, in, di- in dark corners, uh, even, he says, uh, when we all occasionally feel that there is more and more darkness which descends. The final thought I have is, is the following. Um, Wallace Stegner, one of my favorite writers, said one cannot be pessimistic about the West. He said, this is the native home of hope. I love that. As Lee said in his wonderful introduction, I do believe that hope is just ahead. I believe, in fact, that American restoration and others who share our worldview are eager eager to step into the public square and to not be discouraged and uh, and to be reconnected with the things that are worth defending. I believe it is a late hour. There's no doubt about that but I believe that regeneration is possible. And I believe, too, that, that even now, there are seedlings in the destruction that, uh, that, that connote uh, that, that, that something better is ahead. We'll have to see. Uh, it's tempting, both as a conservative and as a Christian, uh, to become a skeptic and to become a cynic. Uh, I've, and I'm sure many people in this room and those watching have felt that uh, if you dare uh, give a note of hope or optimism, it's seen as a form of bad manners. Uh, I believe just the opposite. I believe that there is actually a steady reason to feel uh, better about the way forward and that we have to care about the fate of our soul and the moral regeneration of the greatest country in the history of man. And American restoration, I believe, sets out Just some of the ways we can think about that because I do believe at the end of the day that faith, family, and personal sacrifice can, in fact, help heal our nation. That at the end of the day, we are not two Americas, that we are one America. And I'll close Lee just with this observation, that the greatness of Abraham Lincoln is uncontested on either side of the so-called political chasm. And if we really ask ourselves, how does Lincoln apply today more than ever, not as a political figure, but as a cultural figure, I would argue that Lincoln's mission to reconnect our nation to its founding principles matters more now than ever and is fully in alignment and chemistry with American restoration. I'm hopeful onward. God bless.
2: You've got your work cut out for you, Tim. And uh, maybe you've been making a few trips here and there, but we're going to have to get you, put you on the road, two thirds or three fourths of the time, not one third. There's always talk about uh, a great awakening and how that's come along in our in our country's history. Do you see any sign of something like that, either in terms of culture? or in terms of faith, or or politics as well. Perhaps you could talk to that.
1: I do indeed. And in fact, uh, we talk uh, about, in, in every single one of the 15 chapters of our book, we use real world examples of people, institutions, ministries, nonprofits, who are in all of the 15 areas that I've outlined, doing the work of restoration. Uh, and they are very inspiring examples uh, in the area of, of, of adoption, foster care. Uh, it, it's, I'm, there, there, are, there are all kinds of examples, and, and, and I could go on and on and on with that. But I, I want to go to the 50,000 feet level just for a moment, and one that I think that uh, people will, will generally uh, you know, be inspired by. Uh, I had a meeting uh, in the early 2000s when I was working at the White House and a young producer had come uh, to visit with a few of us, and he said that he was contemplating making The Chronicles of Narnia into a film. And he said, do you think that the power and the timeliness and the relevance of those movies uh, would find its audience? I'll never forget that phrase. And I, I said, I think you've come to the right lunch, because the answer is not only do I think uh, that the lion the witch and the wardrobe you know the the best known of those of that series would find an audience but i said i think that that they would be uh great hits and the question is you know could they find both the money in hollywood and could they find a distribution network well here we are in 2019 and those films have become minor classics already and they uh, are are incredible movies, which, like the novel, reward virtue and punish vice. They are morally imaginative, not diabolically imaginative, and they appeal to the rising generation of young Americans from a nonpartisan standpoint. You know, uh, if you've gone through an entire lifetime with your child and have never introduced your child or in your own life at any age not to understand that you know Lewis's great moral figure is a mouse, right? And what what this night mouse represents, and why he's more relevant as a lovable character than now, uh, you've missed something. And I remember thinking of that conversation many years later, in a in a similar discussion about the potential making of movies by by one of Lewis's great friends, uh, uh, Ronald Tolkien. You know. Uh, could uh, the, the 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 Tolkien books could they be made into great film? Absolutely, they could be, and they have been, and those films will last. Uh, you know and we, we we rightfully disdain and see the decadence that powers much of modern Hollywood. and yet out of that can come extraordinary film with more than a salient effect on the time in which we're we're, we're living. There are great films being made, there are great novels and books being written. Uh, And I think there is a entire uh, Lee to your to your first the first part of your question. I think that there are incredible things happening in in education. You know, in the United States of America now, we have over two million homeschooled families. This is pretty pretty remarkable. We continue, unlike most of the Western world, to continue to have a Robust uh, private education system, both K through twelve and at the collegiate level, you know so I think that there are in fact these sparks of renewal which are very encouraging and the, and these are these are cultural indicators before they are uh, politics or public policy. I might mention one last thing: focus on the family uh, began a series of radio broadcasts for young people called Adventures in Odyssey. And we began this more than 30 years ago on a whim. And the goal was that Adventures in Odyssey would, would last, you know, a couple of seasons. Now we are in the 30-year plus, and they are more popular than they've ever been. So there are all kinds And and as I say, American Restoration is full of these examples. All kinds of individuals, uh, ministries, nonprofits, groups, doing great things. They just don't make the front page every day, but they are having a major cultural impact in our country. I think we need to empower and encourage uh, them more than ever. So I'm hopeful.
2: Mm -hmm. Please, we could uh, get questions from the audience if you would raise your hand, and that we have a uh, microphone. Down, Come down to the front row here. Uh, uh,
0: my, my, this is my, it's a little complicated question, but um, I, I know a lot of conservatives in this room say they want safer streets, quieter borders, and less welfare dependency, and i like to know why your organization chooses to continue to blame non-reproductive lifestyles, such as LGBT acceptance, equal rights amendment, birth control, you know, choice on abortion, for the problems with the family, uh, when it's clear that heterosexual males that create careless and forced pregnancy in women and girls cause a lot of these problems, uh, uh, conservatives keep complaining about. Uh, you see what I'm saying? Uh, if, if uh, we could change the behavior of those who create careless and forced pregnancy women and girls, can we not end abortion without firing a single shot, detonating a single bomb, hindering the path of a single woman or girl at a clinic, or enacting a single anti-choice law? Could we create you know less of the migration issue co- border? I border? what you Thank you.
1: Actually, I, I really appreciate that question. And I thank you for asking it uh, off the bat. I'd like to give an example and and respond to that. Um, After the governor of New York, uh, Governor Cuomo, and the governor of the Commonwealth of Virginia uh, chose to to celebrate and to sign into law uh, the codification of infanticide, uh, Focus on the Family decided that we wanted to respond to both Governor Northam and Governor Cuomo but in a way that was graceful and magnanimous in the public square. And so what we chose to do is we chose to organize an event in Times Square, one of the most public venues in the United States of America, not to put any proverbial knuckles in the chest, not to point any fingers, but in fact to say we are in the midst of a major pro-life debate in this country. So now that you as the governors have had your say about human life, we'd like at Focus on the Family to have our response. And so we uh, had a dialogue with every single one of uh, the people in the private sector in New York who control all the jumbotrons of Times Square. And not a single one of these in the private sector would allow focus on the family uh, to show a third trimester ultrasound, a 4D image of a living child. So what we did is we contracted with a uh, private firm. We got the permitting uh, approval uh, just a few hours before our planned Saturday event. We planned to have five to 7,000 people in Times Square and we had 21,000. It was the largest pro-life event in the history of Manhattan. We also had our own jumbotrons. And I'd like to say, sir, that it was really a remarkable moment for the pro-life debate in Manhattan because as Governor Cuomo chose to to dignify uh, the taking of a human life in the third trimester, we actually showed for 21,000 people uh, the 4D image of a baby. And one of the most absolutely stellar and remarkable moments probably in the history of Times Square was when the president of Focus on the Family, Jim Daly, asked if we could listen to the heartbeat. And to have the sound of the baby's heartbeat echoing off all of those towers in that part of Manhattan was a, it was a remarkable moment. It was a holy hush. A a kind of quietude descended upon all of Times Square, and we heard that remarkable beating of life. We uh, had no uh, negative words for anybody. We, in fact, invited the governors of Virginia and New York to join us. Uh, That kind of American restoration is what we were seeking. That's what this book seeks to do. It seeks to say we can be civil, graceful, magnanimous, unapologetic about what we believe in the public square, and that we can do something really old-fashioned and constitutional, which is we can actually, uh, with magnanimity, uh, engage those who disagree with us, and perhaps even, to your first question, Lee, change the debate.
2: Get this guy out there doing more. than I'm going to put you on national television. I can see that's coming. Um, questions, please. Yes, sir.
3: So, Tim, you just demonstrated what it means to be a gentleman. Thank you for that. And I wondered of the people that you worked with, uh, the political leaders you worked with, George Bush, Dan Quayle, uh, Dan Coates, can you think of times when you thought, that is a gentleman?
1: Thank you for that question. I've been genuinely honored and privileged to work for some of the uh, great men in public life, and you've named some of them. And I could use lots of examples. Um, I think it's fair to say uh, that, and I'm using, I could use examples from everyone, so I hate to pick and choose, but just because you've asked. Um, If Dan Coates is not a good man, then there are no good men in public life. He is a remarkable man of faith. He's a remarkable father, husband, grandfather, son, a public uh, servant extraordinaire, House, Senate, ambassador, now our director of national intelligence. And the answer to your question is yes. As his press secretary for many years, I remember a day when I had one of the greatest fumbles in my professional career. And it was a moment uh, that uh, I I was biting my nails. And he called me into the office and shut the door uh, and explained to me uh, the better way to go forward. And I will never forget it. And I thought to myself, that probably will never be equaled in my professional life, except when I got to the White House. And blaming no one else except for myself, me, myself, and I, I created one of the greatest uh, moral blunders of my life, with no one to blame, as I say, but me. And in the political class, when you have a moral failure of that nature, there is a kind of divorce that takes place. You are persona non grata. And I perfectly expected that to be my fate, except for in a way that is now inexplicable, apart from providence. The president asked me to come to the Oval Office, George W. Bush, just him and me, and asked me to close the door. And I thought, this is my woodshed moment, for which I deserved everything that was going to happen to me. Except for he turned to me, man to man, and he said the following, you're forgiven. And I was quite certain that I had not heard the president of the United States standing in the middle of the Oval Office I I was quite certain I had not heard him properly, and I attempted to apologize a second time. And he said, grace and mercy are real. I've known grace and mercy in my life, and I'm extending grace and mercy to you, you're forgiven. So not once, but twice, a professional failing and a personal failing in my life, uh, I have had the blessing Uh, to be able to have a U.S. Senator and a U.S. President at what what could have been, uh, and and in many ways were, in the latter instance, the worst crisis of my life, uh, uh, show to me a kind of gentlemanliness that was born directly of their Christianity.
2: Please...
3: My question is that why you are surprised that America has gone down regarding uh, moral issues and why for since World War II the government and private policy in all over world has been promoting of selfishness Self-interest, sex, corruption, and uh, a lot of other materialistic, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, uh, requirements or demands. And subsequently, they have affected this country because whether one way or the other, it has come to this country and... uh, has been the result of the same policies why are you
1: surprised well first i I'm, I'm not entirely surprised. Uh, I think that most people uh, of goodwill on both sides of the proverbial aisle are not entirely surprised um, but I, I think the, the best way to answer you is is in this way because it springs from our book. Our founding fathers and mothers uh, and we know this from diaries letters observations. We're very interested in that proverbial moment in Western civilization where it ceased to be the Roman Republic where things were relatively free and became the Roman Empire. That people ceased being citizens and they became subjects, right? Not under the direction of the relative freedom of the Roman Senate, but under not one, but 12 Caesars. I'm generalizing for purposes of our time together, but their conclusion in part was that there had been a disconnect between a moral code uh, and life in what became the Roman Empire. And the way that your question connects directly to the narrative of our book, American Restoration, And I think that this springs in part from the late, great Michael Novak's observation that you cannot understand the United States of America if you don't understand that although we have no national established church, that we are ultimately a religious republic. You know, that in the American experience, this virtue and moral excellence that gives us the ability for ordered liberty doesn't come from nowhere that in the American experience, it comes from the Holy Bible and from Scripture. And that does not presuppose that every one of our founders or every one of our public servants then or now are overwhelmingly and exclusively men and women of faith, but that in the American experience, our founders were very interested in knowing, deciding, discussing from history where that virtue quotient comes from. And one of the things that we argue in American Restoration is the need to reconnect and to reweave this very important connection between faith and public life, between revelation and reason. Um, You know, Leo Strauss, uh, brilliantly in Athens and Jerusalem, sees that the, that the dynamism of Western civilization is this this natural tension between reason and revelation you know and 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 we need it in america it's it, It's healthy in the public square to allow to allow a large room for faith and religion and um, and I believe uh, that that in this rising generation of young men and women that despite the coarseness and the toughness of the culture as we argue in American restoration that in fact there are new avenues forward for spiritual renewal because it's 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 essential to to what we need going forward
2: way in the back back the
1: back row yes ma'am
2: Good afternoon, Mr. Gogoline. Thank you for speaking with us today. I was just wondering, um, for the younger generation who are going to eventually become mothers and fathers themselves one day, what tangible advice do you have to find role models when we're living in a culture of so much divorce and fatherlessness? How do you find men and women to look up to to become great mothers and fathers one day?
1: You know, I'm really grateful for this question because I was at one of the largest Christian universities three years ago speaking to a very large group of young people. And uh, I I, I have to candidly admit, I forget what the topic was that day, but I remember a young woman raising her hand, and she said the following, referencing Focus on the Family. She said, Mr. Gagline, those of us in this room right? They were juniors and seniors in college. We want to be married. We want to have families of our own. You know, we want that. But she said, you need to know that there are lots of us in this room, and I'll never forget this, where we grew up in homes where our fathers didn't like our mothers and our mothers didn't like our fathers. And so she said, our generation has, broken up, has grown up with a lot of brokenness, And she said, we want to take it more slowly than others have. Never forgotten that. Another example, I was speaking at the Jackie Robinson Center in Southern California. Very honored and privileged to be there. And uh, I remember uh, finishing my speech after I had said in the middle of the speech that my father is my best friend, which happens to be the case. And just like you snap your fingers, Several of the young people in that room looked down at the floor as if I had said one of George Carlin's seven dirty words. And I thought, what have I said? So I asked one of my hosts, what did I say? He said, oh, it was a great speech, but you said that your dad is your best friend. And I said, yes, I did. He said, do you realize that there are a large percentage of young people in that room who don't even know their biological dad or have never lived in the same, in the same home as their father I've never forgotten that. So the answer to your question is the following. In American Restoration, we hold up the family. We hold up marriage. We hold up parenting. These are great gifts from God, perhaps the greatest gifts. We also understand that it is a new time and a new generation. And I uh, think that one of the important examples that we use is the ability to come into the most difficult marriages, the most difficult family situations, and to model and to pattern the way forward. Uh, I remember Lee being in this room when Midge Dector, a great friend, gave a speech in the 1990s in which he said, Just remember, God does not put us in families always to be happy, but because we're human. I love that. So the way forward, I think, is good. But the formation of it may take a little longer than we have in the past.
2: Yes, please. Questions? Please.
3: Thank you, Tim. A pleasure. Uh, You talked a lot about optimism and uh, being a hopeful nation, I sort of see despair that you talked about as well as the dam that's blocking a lot of this fresh flow of this good spirit of restoration. Yes. I wonder if you could say more about how we directly break that dam down.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, I'm I'm very glad you asked that. I wanted to um, quote one of my favorite authors, G.K. Chesterton who, by the way, came on over from England. I believe it was in the 19-teens. And I kid you not, he was such a remarkable figure. And his speech and his narrative was so powerful that they would invite people into the Notre Dame football stadium to listen to Chesterton, right? Chesterton said at least five times, the faith has to all appearances gone to the dogs. He says, in each of these five cases, It is the dog that died. I think that's right. Faith is not less relevant today than it was yesterday. And I would argue, even attendant to the last two questions, that faith remains more timely, more relevant, more topical to 21st century America than at any other time in American history. You know, um, my son and I very recently were uh, having a discussion about the five most notable battles of the Civil War. And at the end of that discussion, I remember saying to my son, and just remember, that 750,000 Americans died uh, in the Civil War. And that same evening, we were watching something on television. And one of the pundits right, said, we've never been this divided in the history of the United States. And I thought, really? So I think we have to be very careful, uh, as you are in your question, but I think we have to be very careful uh, about assigning the political toxicity of 21st century America and the divisions over against other times in our country, which have been remarkably tough, right? The American Revolution itself, the nullification crisis, the Civil War, you know, the, the, the era or period of reconstruction afterward, Two world wars, a Great Depression, you know? Uh, Division in free societies is a reality. A gap in free societies is a reality. The question is, how does a free society and a great nation deal with that gap? And in our view in American Restoration, and the reason in part that we wrote this book is to say that religion and faith is not a divisive factor. That pushes us farther apart. That, in faith, in the great Judeo-Christian tradition, it's a tool to help actually bring us together. And I believe that's the case in our in our history, and I believe it's the case now.
2: Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen. I think Russell Kirk and some of the other people you've mentioned would be very, very proud indeed to have shared this auditorium with you, Tim. You've been absolutely brilliant in your presentation. This is the book, American Restoration. The author would be happy to sign copies for you, which are available outside in the hall, to come back in here and to have him sign the book. Please join me in thanking Tim once again.